Do you, have you ever questioned his, his mental fitness? And describe your relationship with him, because some people would think it's, you know, through his tweets and stuff, it's, it's not a very good relationship. I've never questioned his mental fitness. I have no reason to question his mental fitness. If we're being honest, this isn't news. Everyone already knew that Trump isn't the fastest fidget spinner out there. Correct. The president wanted to be personally protected by the attorney general uh, with regard to the Russia probe. The truth is, Mr. President, you made your bed. Now, eat your cheeseburger and it's... Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Welcome to 2018. We're in sleepy, snowy January now, so we're huddled up with cocoa, and the president definitely did not spend the week trying to erase humankind by talking about his hefty, wide-girth nuclear button on Twitter and how he's ready to use it on North Korea. He's got a button and knows how to use it. Okay, that one's not funny. Someone should just send Trump images of his face, and this wouldn't be trolling, just facts, with radiation sores, which would peel off not just every layer of dermis, but also his toner, his moisturizer, his skin balm, his primer, his silicon color-correcting primer, and seven layers of ochre base makeup plus ochre powder. And it would leave deep sores, like the one he's been inflicting on the hearts of the American people for low this whole year. Anyway, that was Tuesday. By Wednesday, we had leaks from Michael Wolff's new book about the Trump White House, Fire and Fury, named, of course, for Trump's other reckless comments about what he'd do to North Korea. And then we had a whole excerpt in New York Magazine, followed by the circulation of the actual book, which I, myself, your stalwart co-host of Trumpcast, Virginia Heffernan, reviewed in my new opinion column in the LA Times yesterday. Yes, in spite of the snow, I managed to score Fire and Fury, check out my column. It's called Why Believe Michael Wolf? Because for now, this stuff's too good not to. I found something in the book that was especially striking that I haven't yet seen reported. James Comey, according to Michael Wolf, was not fired as FBI director just for this Russia thing. No, he was fired to stop him poking around Les Affaires, Atlantic City, Trump Soho, Mar-a-Lago, 666 Fifth Avenue, Barry Steinmetz, Andrews. So I have two guests today in this momentous week. The first is Renato Mariotti, former federal prosecutor, legal expert for TV and print, and Twitter threader par excellence. He is also a candidate for Illinois Attorney General. The second guest to talk palace intrigue, or it's more like carny intrigue, because who can dignify the current White House as a palace? My guest is Aswin Subsang. He's a politics reporter at the Daily Beast and a veteran of meaningful confidences from White House officials, during which, he tells me, they regularly call the president, wait for it, a fucking moron. I'll be back with these guests in just a minute. Joining me on the line is Renato Mariotti. He's a former federal prosecutor and candidate for Illinois Attorney General. Welcome, Renato. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So yesterday, Michael Schmidt in The New York Times published a piece. Is there another word but bombshell? Let's just call it a bombshell (laughs) with new details surrounding Robert Mueller's obstruction of justice inquiry. Um, I want to go through each one with you and, and get your response. Maybe you can you can tell us what any of this means. Sure. One of the first revelations was that President Trump used Don McGahn, White House counsel, to try to get Jeff Sessions to refrain from recusing himself from the Russia investigation. One of the things I think is interesting here is that 
McGann went to Sessions, just a small clause in the piece, and started to say, oh, you can hold off on the recusal, and this isn't that bad, and you can, and Sessions said, lots of people are encouraging me to recuse myself, and it looks like McGann just said, you know what, my bad, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think about that part of things? Does that look like a new piece of obstruction? What do you think about Don McGann's role there? Um, well, I, what I would say is, it's first of all, it's very highly unusual. I mean, just so everyone knows, I mean, you recuse yourself when there's an, uh, uh, some sort of conflict of interest or an appearance that you can't be fair. And typically, that's not something where you have other people. I've recused myself from cases. I didn't have people coming and, and begging me to unrecuse myself. It's a very unusual thing to do. I mean, typically, so if, you know, if one, if one person's recused, in this case, Sessions, then Rosenstein can step in. And that's why you have confidence in the people that you, know, you appointed under Sessions. So it's very unusual. It's certainly for the White, also very unusual for the White House counsel to be getting involved here. And, you know, I think that's why he backed off so quickly. I mean, that's what you were saying, Virginia. It's like he made this pitch, like, hey, you don't have to recuse yourself yet, et cetera. And he immediately backed off when Sessions pushed back because it's highly unusual and, you know, could raise a lot of questions. Now, in terms of the the legal significance of it from a criminal law perspective, because obviously that's what Bob Mueller is investigating, I think what what the importance of, of it is really the request from Trump. I mean, in other words, mm-hmm. you know, Trump is asking Sessions to, or excuse me, asking McGahn, please get Sessions not to recuse himself. And I believe there's some language in the article about how he wanted uh, Sessions to be, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, looking out for him. I don't remember the exact word off the top of my head, but it was yep. essentially to, to be protecting him. And that's the sort of thing that can be very powerful evidence for Mueller to use to prove what's, what, what uh, under the law is called corrupt intent. What you have to hmm. show is because there's nothing in and of itself that's wrong with the president firing the FBI director. I mean, if the FBI director was engaged in misconduct, then that would be an appropriate thing to do. Um, so, you know, what, what you have to show for it to be a criminal violation is that you, you took whatever action you were taking with the intent to, you know, unlawfully impede the investigation. And when you have the president saying, keep Sessions in there, I need him to protect me uh, from the investigation, that's pretty good evidence that the president was very intensely concerned about the investigation and wanted to be protected. So I think, uh. um, you know, and, and wanted to impede it in some way. So I think that's that's really interesting. And, you know, I think the fact that McGahn went so far along with it, um, I think, means that McGahn is going to be uh, subject to, you know, and I'm sure he was already asked by Mueller some very difficult questions. And I'm sure, you know, he had some answer as to why he uh, initially uh, sought that from Sessions. So a second thing that the article reveals, this is yesterday's Times piece um, by Michael Schmidt, is that Jeff Sessions was actively looking for dirt on Jim Comey. Now, we get the we the word dirt, you know, like the word bombshell, has circulated a lot in discussions of this investigation. And the last time it came up, or the time it usually comes up, is in what the Russians were, th- were you know, expected <laughs> to provide or, or promising to provide um, mm-hmm. to Papadopoulos and to the campaign on Hillary Clinton. So, in other words, this is part of the dirty tricks component of things. Looking for mm-hmm. dirt on Jim Comey would be to leak to the press. We're talking about Jeff Sessions being pressured to get involved in and then getting involved in the optics, the press initiative, the press, you know, the part that Trump loves the most. Dirt on Jim Comey that he expected to release in spoonfuls once a day to the media. 
I mean, what do you think of that? It's really shocking uh, because obviously Jeff Sessions is the head of the Justice Department. Uh, one thing that people may not realize is the FBI is technically part of that under underneath that. So, yeah. you know, he's essentially the guy who's overseeing the Justice Department and the FBI, and he's you know, there he had a play, played a role in the firing of James Comey, and now, despite being recused from the Russia investigation, uh, is you know essentially trying to find dirt on a witness against the president of the United States. Uh, it is shocking, and it's very highly unethical and a problem for Jeff Sessions. Now, is it a crime? I mean, that's I was asked a lot that on Twitter online. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't know in and of itself if it's a crime. In other words, you know, if Jeff Sessions was just um, some guy, let's say Steve Bannon, and he decided, yeah. I want to find some dirt on James Comey. Well, he can talk to the press all he wants about whatever bad things he thinks there are about James Comey. But the fact that it's the, ju- the head of the Justice Department doing it is is what's really disturbing here. So Sessions, I wish Sessions had come to me, incidentally, because um, I've read Jim Comey's undergraduate thesis on Reinhold Niebuhr, and I quarrel w- with a <laughs> couple of passages in there that really would have been bombshells had they been released huh. to the American public. Um, so the other, another revelation of this piece in the Times is that notes exist from Reince Priebus, which might support some of the testimony of James Comey. What do you make of, of that, the, that, that Priebus also, like Comey, has been taking notes? Well, it's, that's really great news for Bob Mueller. I'll tell you, when I was a federal prosecutor, the, the two people that I loved the most uh, in an investigation were the guy who email sends everything over email and the guy who takes copious notes. So we always love those people, the handwritten notes guy. Uh, so, you know, the fact that Priebus took handwritten notes, uh, that means that, first of all, he's really locked in as to what he said. It's going to be in what he remembers, it's going to be very difficult for Priebus to say that he doesn't remember something when he can refresh his memory from his notes. Yep. Uh, it'll be very difficult for him to veer too far from the notes. So that's the first thing. The second thing is those notes can be used in court uh, as a prior consistent statement or a past recollection recorded, which are both legal terms. But the, the, the bottom line is mm-hmm. you typically can't just throw a document into evidence. But if Priebus takes a witness stand and uh, the lawyer for whoever, and let's see, in the Trump camp, attacks Priebus as being uh, a guy who's fabricating things or lying, um, then he can bring in his notes and say, well, actually, I took these notes at the time, and here's what they say, and they back up what I am saying now, so you you can feel confident that I didn't just make this up uh, on the way to trial. We had Jeff Tubin on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he had just written a story in, in The New Yorker about Trump's defense. One of the things that I thought was very, very interesting in that piece is that he quoted he sort of stopped using the words allegation and quoted as fact what went on in the private conversation between Comey and Trump that Comey says was about the investigation mm. about Flynn. So he's, so what he says is, in The New Yorker, which, you know, I was a fact checker there. This is heavily fact checked. There's no um, wiggle room for misinterpretation of events. And and what the, the line is, you know, can you see your way clear to letting Flynn go, said Donald Trump. And in other words, mm-hmm. what we have is what we all know to be Comey's notes and Comey's testimony about what mm-hmm. went on in that conversation now being truth. And the buck has to stop somewhere. And I think at least in the court of public opinion, we can agree that someone making contemporaneous notes with, you know, a, a relatively clean history of rectitude and honesty is allowed to say what happened in these conversations and Donald Trump is <laughs> not. 
Um, well, what I would say is, you know, what's really revealing about that, Virginia, is the fact that the Trump uh, camp has been, you know, has shifted their defense, right? I mean, the defense, I mean, I think that in the days right after Comey testified, there was some attempt to say, well, it didn't quite happen that way. But really, the focus has been since then, even from their camp, well, the president had authority to do this. It wasn't a crime, even if you fired Comey to end the investigation, so on and so forth. I spent a lot of time on TV and in print debating with Alan Dershowitz and others on this point, you know, other Trump uh, defenders. Um, and I think the reason that they're doing that is they're essentially a tacit acknowledgement that, yeah, Trump did this, uh, and so what, uh, is where they're at. And I think we're starting to see that frankly, uh, to an extent on, on what people call collusion. I don't like the term as much because it's not a legal term, but this collusion piece where now it's like, yeah, there's no real problem if you, uh, you know, make agreements with the Russians to, you know, do whatever. So I think, uh, you know, there is an element of a sort of tacit admission, uh, the truth of the allegations when you do that. Um, the question we come back, keep coming back to in the obstruction of justice thread, and as you say, obstruction of justice, it seems like the legal analysts, including yourself, believe that there is more evidence of obstruction of justice and that it's a more consequential, isolable, identifiable crime than is, quote, collusion or even criminal conspiracy. The question we keep coming back to in this obstruction of justice question is what Trump's motives were. I mean, aside from the fact Mm -hmm. that he plainly told Lester Holt that he fired Comey because of the Russia investigation, this Russia thing, Lafayre Russe, there are more details here uh, in uh, in this uh, Michael Schmidt article into his thinking and the thinking of those around him. So within the details of the Times story, do you see more evidence that Mueller could be using could be using some of this to say that Trump's motives were corrupt, that he was he was moved to actually obstruct justice? Yeah, I do uh, see see some really important nuggets there. You know, one thing that's important to note, uh, Virginia, I get all a question. One question I get all the time whenever I write a thread on Twitter or people ask me on the air, they'll be like, "Well, what about that Lester Holt interview? Didn't that just op- make it an open and shut yeah. case?" First of all, I'll tell you, as a former federal prosecutor, I never had a trial with one exhibit. Okay, it's, uh-huh. it's never that simple to prove what's inside someone's head because we don't have a telescope in terms of their intent or motive. Uh, to use your phrase, so. What I, if I was Trump's lawyer, which I'm not, uh, uh, thankfully, I never would be. But if I was if I was representing him, what I would say is, well, yeah, he wanted to end the Trump investi- the uh, Russia investigation because he thought it was a hoax or he thought it was unfounded. It was a waste of government resources, et cetera. And I think what Mueller is going to set out to prove and show beyond a reasonable doubt is that his motive in ending that investigation was not because he thought it was meritless, but because he was afraid of what was to come. And a statement like, hey, I need the sessions in there to protect me, um, to you know, look out for the president, me as president in a way that other attorney generals have done that for their presidents or, or so on, that is um, much, you know, much more direct towards a corrupt intent mm. than just him saying, yeah, of course it was about Russia which is what he said to Lester Holt. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you know, when you look at that, that White House counsel who did not, who withheld information from the president uh, in order to prevent him from firing Comey, I thought that was a really remarkable thing. I mean, as mm-hmm. a lawyer, I've never withheld information from my client yes. uh, and said, I'm not going to tell you about this option because I'm afraid that you will take it. Um so that was pretty amazing. And the question, the, what's useful there for Mueller is not the fact that this guy did it, okay? It's that what prompted him to do that? There had to be some 
thing that he saw or heard that convinced him that you, he could not or should not present that option to uh, to the to Trump. And I think that you know that is going to be really interesting as well. That he could ultimately be an important witness. The, this um, unnamed lawyer in the mix did did some research on whether Trump even could fire the FBI director without cause. Right? He this mm-hmm. this was in trying. Before they invent, they wrote the so-called Bedminster memo, the the pre-Rosenstein cleaned up memo. The, the one of the lawyers, you know, did some research to figure out if he could just summarily fire the fire Comey. He concluded that he, he sure could, but then came back to Trump without that information, and even led him to believe that he could not fire Comey without cause. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, of course, it's. I mean, typically you could fire somebody. For any reason, yeah. it's just if the reason is totally improper, you know, I mean, it's it's sort of like, you know, a, t- a typical employer, you know, if if a uh, slate asked me, can you uh, can you hire a fire Virginia? Well, sure, you can. Um, but you can't do it because of your, you know, because you're a woman. You can't do it because, you know, for some improper reason like that as, as president, you, know, you can make a lot of decisions. You can't do them, for example, as a result of taking a bribe. So, you know, I don't know what was going through the head of this lawyer, but you know, you know, obviously there was enough there that made him think it was a concern. Now the question is, did he think it was a political concern or a legal one? In other words, did he think firing Comey is going to really hurt the Trump presidency because it's going to generate a lot of hoopla and, and uh, bad press? Or did he believe that there was something dangerous that the president was trying to do? And if it's the latter, that's what's really important and interesting for Mueller. Obviously, we don't know from the article exactly what was going through his head. And more importantly, what he saw and heard that led him to do that, because it's not like this guy was just decided that in a vacuum. I'm sure there was something he was reacting to that caused him to take such an extreme step. Uh, So I should say, I correct myself, the lawyer is named in the piece. His name is Utan Dillon. And he, so Utan Dillon in saying, in withholding from him that he could have fired him without cause, might have done Mueller um, a favor because he, you know, forced him to come up with a reason or contributed to his coming mm-hmm. up with a reason. Now, Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittes on their law f- emergency lawfare podcast last night seem to say that it sounds a bit fishy that Dylan would have withheld information from his boss. That that maybe there's something glitchy in the reporting here. What do you think? Well, it it sounds to me just in my first initial glance was unethical. I mean, that's you mm. know, typically a, a lawyer has an ethical obligation to report to their client what their legal options are, and to mislead a client is a very serious ethical violation. Mm. So it, it's pretty extreme thing for a uh, a White House. Uh, a lawyer to decide not to inform his boss. I mean, it would be it would be a problem if, I, if for anybody if if I was representing you and I declined to tell you about your legal options and you know misled you about the state of the law. That's pretty serious thing for a lawyer. And you know the appropriate step if I was worried that you were going to commit a crime would be to tell you that doing a particular thing would be to you know would commit a crime or could constitute a crime or warn you about that as opposed to withholding something from you. So I don't know if it's a glitch in the reporting or not. Um, if it's not, I, you know, what I what I try to do in my role is sort of explain to people what the implications are of what is reported. I, I don't know know what the New York Times sources are, but, you know, if it's true, it's a pretty extreme step. And that's why I think 
whatever his motives were or what he saw and heard is so important. So we're going to file this under if true troubling. <laughs> um, so there you go. another, and this is my last, the last section I want to discuss, another insight from the article into Trump's relationship with Jeff Sessions is that, Sess- that Trump seemed to expect that his attorney general but would be not just sort of loyal to him, but a henchman. He, I think, mm-hmm. you know, and he believes that that's what Robert Kennedy did for his his brother when he was AG. He also believes that that's what Eric Holder did for um, Obama. And I think, you know, it sounds like Trump wants a Michael Cohen, you know, the kind of family lawyer mm-hmm. body man who said he'd take a bullet for Trump as AG. He, he expects it, him to be in that intimate a role, you know, that he's like almost mm-hmm. like a pit bull for Trump's id, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, is this insane? I mean, what is the role of AG with respect to the president? Obviously, there are attorneys general who've been closer to the closer to their presidents, their bosses than than others. What is that relationship? Wow. Well, you know, that's that's something uh, that's something that Every every lawyer for the government uh, is has pounded into their heads, and 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 I did when I first was hired as a government lawyer, which is you know there's an there's an inscription in the rotunda of the, uh, the Justice Department building in Washington that says the United States wins its point when justice is done its people in the courts. In other words, huh. the client is the United States and not the president of the United States, and that's the or the current administration, and that's. That's really the point there is that Jeff Sessions' role is to protect and defend the people of the United States and uphold the laws and constitution of the United States, not to protect any one man. And so that's that's the unfortunate thing about that that uh, perspective that Trump has. I think that's important, really, really important. Your point that basic that McGahn and Dil- and Utan Dillon are serving the president, where Jeff Sessions is serving the people, um, and that's a distinction that gets obscured in Trump's scheme of these things. Um, thank you so much for being here, Renato. You're welcome. My, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I'd love to come back again sometime. Next up to talk about the rest of the week's madness, and in particular the real Housewives showdown between Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, is Aswin Supsang, politics reporter at The Daily Beast. At his invitation, I'll be calling him Swin. Welcome, Swin. Thank you so much for having me. So we have a lot to talk about. This week, meaning two days ago, The Guardian got some leaks from Michael Wolff's, I want to say incendiary book, but maybe it doesn't, which needs no modification, Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House. Yeah. We get leaks. Salacious seems to be the go-to adjective. Salacious. Salacious. There's always something like this. And Michael Wolff himself is always called a gadfly. So let's not try to improve on any of this. So Michael Mm -hmm. Wolff's book um, leaks to The Guardian. The Guardian publishes something saying, some piece of it saying that Steve Bannon called Don Jr. treasonous in meeting with Russians in 2016. And that Guardian leak forces the hand of New York Magazine, which has an exclusive excerpt that too runs Wednesday. Um, And by Thursday, the book is, yesterday, the book is everywhere, um, including, it sounds like, at the Daily Beast. So have you all poured over it there? Uh, Yes, indeed. But as um, juicy and tidbit dripping as Michael Wolff's new book might be, what what we're far more interested in how this has been roiling the Trump White House and more broadly Trump world in itself. To, To me, at least, that is the far more interesting story and how this is occupying 
a great segment of the president's mind uh, for this week and I'm sure in the days and weeks to come. So, yeah, what's interesting when you say that is it's how the book's how the book's roiling things. In a way, it doesn't matter the content of the book. One thing we do learn from Michael Wolff in the book is that Trump, as we've long suspected, doesn't read and that he cer- most certainly has not read this book. So basically, the book is an entry in a war. It throws down a gauntlet, a gauntlet that says Steve Bannon has been talking out of turn about the president, has uh, deserted the president, believes him to be idiotic, believes his team to be treasonous, believes that he was the brains behind everything. One thing we learned from the book is that Bannon was responsible for the executive orders in the first hundred days. He was the, the, the shadow president for the time he was there. And Trump has bashed back about that. And that's kind of the response to the book so far in the White House. And, and that's the narrative that Bannon has been trying to spin for quite some time now in terms of, look, like the president of the United States and Steve Bannon are very similar in quite a few key ways. And one of them, first and foremost, perhaps, is the colossal, catastrophically large size of their respective egos. But uh, back to what you were saying earlier about how the fact that this book exists is perhaps more important than the actual literature of it. I mean, like just when you think President Donald Trump uh, has enough media feuds on his hands. Mm. Here's another media feud, a uh, media feud that has just been um, foisted upon him. Mm. Like, I, I'm not, I don't exaggerate, and I'm not being cute when I say I can't think of a single other soul in this country of millions upon millions of people who care about media feuds and media gossip as much or more, or at least more than this president. This is a major yeah. news story that is almost tailor-made for uh, Donald Trump's obsession. Mm-hmm. And here we are. And back to what you were saying earlier regarding uh, the book saying that, oh, he doesn't read and walks out of briefings. He definitely takes some briefings and intelligence briefings. But from what I and several other reporters and news outlets have heard over the past year is that the people who give him these briefings go out of their way to almost turn it into sort of a picture book version of a presidential briefing for the president. They abridge the language, they simplify it, they add photos. So it's not that the president refuses briefings left and right, it's that he he, he will refuse them if they get too long or verbose or to, shall we say, presidential for him. <laughs> so, right. And so, you know, and he obviously gets his morning briefings from Fox and Friends. There's a great piece today about how exactly, I think in Politico, about how much and how quickly the literal echo chamber with, with Fox and Friends and Fox News works with Trump. So, in other words, he says something, they repeat it, he repeats what they repeat and vice versa, uh, you know, that that it is actually this form of mimicry that is that doubles as a briefing for him. Then at the same time, my guess is with the book and see wh- what you think. He's just watching Michael Wolf on TV and Wolf is saying that Trump's anger at him is only proving the thesis of the book, that this is a volatile, unstable cognitively impaired person who can't govern because he's so seized with these vindictive feuds. Look, it's really easy to seize on the President Trump 
and Steve Bannon aspects of this book and the emerging public feud that has quickly gotten out of hand this week mm-hmm. um, because it's such a dramatic element to it. But I think something that's getting lost in all of that, something that's getting lost in, among other things, how uh, Bannon and Trump, for as much as Steve Bannon uh, says he loves the president um, in public, he, there certainly is a large element of clashing egos between the two of them that uh, may or may not get exacerbated in the coming months. But having said that, the um, something important for your listeners to keep in mind and people who check out this book is that it's not just Steve Bannon who has been saying or has allegedly been saying um, these things, attacking the president or his family, or perhaps even the president's um, alleged idiocy. It's mm. virtually every single senior official in the White House and in his administration, who uh, some of whom are household names by now, who have been um, saying privately, not just according to Michael Wolf's account, but by accounts we've had at the Daily Beast and accounts that appeared in places like the Washington Post and the New York Times and myriad other news outlets yeah. that, uh, for lack of better terms, and again, some of this is just pure quoting, that in private, these guys, whether they're people like Gary Cohn, H.R. McMaster, Rex Tillerson, Reince Priebus, you, you, you name it, they think Trump is an idiot yep. who is very potentially or very definitely not up for the job. This, this has been... This is barely even an open secret in Trump world about people shitting on the president when he's not around. And you've you hear this yourself. Yes. Oh, yes. So <laughs> we, give, and tell me what and that... we've actually we've reported a lot of that over the past 12 months. It's almost hard for me to catalog it at this point. <laughs> but tell me what it sounds like, because, you know, oh, they, they call him a fucking moron. They like they they constantly facepalm. They, they <laughs> it's, it's their job. To like, if we're just to talk about only Trump's Twitter for a moment, like anytime he goes on an insane Twitter rant, it's basically their job to improvise why it's okay and then make that official White House political and messaging strategy and defend it. Like that, like it, it's that simple. Like there's there's nothing there's there, there's no grand chessboard playing out over any of this. It's it's very relentlessly based. Yeah, I saw a production of The Dead last night. James Joyce is The Dead. It was actually fantastic. Um, I'm not paid. And um, uh-huh. and on it, the, there's a very drunk figure, um, Freddie, who keeps coming into this um, play and disrupting everything. And the, the refrain comes out after he leaves. Oh, it was barely noticeable. It was barely <laughs> noticeable. And sometimes I feel like, the, you know, these are people who are covering for a drunk, abusive father and every time they get punched in the stomach, then they have to turn it into, I had it coming. This is just how he is. It's barely noticeable. You know, I see Sean Spicer today issued, you know, semi-apology for for exaggerating the size of Trump's inauguration crowds. And it really, you really get the sense in Fire and Fury and in what people have said to you and and elsewhere that this crowd of toadies... That is, this has been very demoralizing for people who've worked for him and in the White House. I mean, these are meant to be dignified jobs, and they've turned into this, like, codependent Smithers role that must be taking its toll on people like Priebus. Yeah, I, I, I can 
hear from the sound of your voice how sorry you must feel for guys like that. But, uh, <laughs> but, you I know, mean, I don't know I, why, look, but I kind of do. Uh, uh, okay. Um, Not no, you. No comment. But, okay, well, look, like all White House jobs are dehumanizing and demoralizing and degrading to some point. Like, okay. that's true with every administration just because of the toll and the stress of the job and at times the incredibly high stakes. That's fine. It's just that they usually don't have this bizarro reality TV wannabe authoritarian feeling faux like tough guy maniac aspect to it. Like um, I'm trying to think about a historical comparison and Nixon certainly had a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And again, it wasn't as flashy Hollywood reality TV like parody of itself style that we have the, the Trump landscape we have now. But it's certainly a unique time to be working in senior ranks of an administration or a White House right now. It's 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 darkly fascinating for me as a political reporter whose job it is to figure out what the hell is going on on X, Y and Z room on a given day and what the potential consequences of it are. But, yeah, like darkly humorous is probably adverb and adjective I use to describe my beat most often. When people happen to ask me, like, how your day was. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right, before we go, I want to say that, you know, this darkly humorous, the theater of the absurd, has only becomes a problem when these players have a lot of power and money. So one thing to say on the power question is, obscured by the news after, after the book came out and then after a Times bombshell last night about obstruction, Obscured by all that has been, I think, the president's Tuesday tweet, maybe Monday tweet, threatening Kim Jong-un with the size of his penis, I mean, button, um, and his willing to use that penis, I mean, button. Um, That was this (laughs) week. That was this week, saber-rattling about freaking nuclear war. It's funny you should say that. Uh, One one of the senior White House officials I was speaking to earlier this week for a story on exactly what you're talking about said that it's become a running joke among some in the West Wing that, oh, nuclear war could start from the private residence of the White House while President Trump is, like, binge-watching Fox News. It's just a matter of, like, depending on when the joke is made, how much uncomfortable laughter is sort of weaved into the conversation. Like, there's certainly a lot of, like... (laughs) Uh, as we were saying earlier, it's a parody of itself. Do I think Donald Trump is going to start nuclear war one day because he's hate tweeting at his TV? Probably not. But it's a little bit disconcerting, even if we don't want to be melodramatic about it, about how cavalier and how casual he is about the power he has at his fingertips to potentially end life on the face of the planet. <laughs> Nicely said. That was the the power part of the question. The other question is about the money, and that's something you've written about, um, about the Mercers in particular withdrawing their support, not from our president and his, you know, big button, but from Steve Bannon. They've been in the process, it sounds like, of disassociating themselves from Breitbart and Bannon for a while, but now they've made a clean break with him and chosen the president. Is this good news or bad news? It's, I should say, pretty expected news. Uh, what we okay. reported at the Daily Beast uh, l- yesterday was that um, shortly before Rebecca Mercer's uh, statement that pretty much knifed Bannon and uh, 
publicly announced a severing of ties appeared in the Washington Post. Uh, she got on the phone with uh, President Donald Trump, and they discussed, of course, what appeared in Michael Wolff's book, Steve Bannon, their mutual displeasure at it. And she reaffirmed her pledge of loyalty um, and fealty to the president. And that was that. And then she made sure to make it public on the record that she disapproved of what Bannon was doing and that I'm still all in. And so is my family uh, still all in for for making America great again and President Donald Trump Hmm. and the Mercer family, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, are like a high rolling Republican mega donors. Mm. And they're obviously they're very influential with their pocketbook in conservative politics. And um, the thing about the Mercers and particularly Rebecca Mercer's relationship with Bannon and why this is significant that they're severing ties is because plenty of Bannon's projects have been bankrolled, underwritten or largely funded uh, by Mercer money. And also Rebecca Mercer has been kind of like his professional and in a way personal uh, sister, even in a lot of ways, uh, they they go they go back years, and as we reported, I think a year ago at the Daily Beast, when uh, j- just to give you an example of how close they are, when Bannon tried and failed to set up Breitbart India back in 2015, as in like Breitbart, but a bureau based in uh, some wherever in India, uh, Rebecca Mercer was literally at his side interviewing potential candidates to do so. Uh, This is someone who has been tight with Bannon for a long time and and has had zero qualms about breaking out the checkbook for him for uh, whatever his heart has desired. So if this um, is the death of the relationship for real, and I'll believe that if this severing of ties persists for months, if not years, then it, it could potentially be a huge deal. And it could upend uh, Steve Bannon's um, desire to wage a, quote-unquote, season of war on the Republican establishment. Politically, that's the equivalent of what he's threatening with Kim Jong-un, um, scorched earth. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for being here, Swin. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. That's it for today's show. But before we go, I want to correct an error I made in last week's show in my interview with Ellen Nakashima about Kremlin trolls. For the record, Counterpunch magazine never published the Kremlin troll Alice Donovan's pieces on Hillary Clinton and WikiLeaks during the election. They published other pieces of hers. The pieces on Hillary Clinton and WikiLeaks appeared in other publications. I regret the error. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.